All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin or on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, as Paul continues uh, to speak to the church at Corinth. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The word of the Lord. Well, you may know that there are many names that God uses to describe himself in the Bible. I'm sure you're familiar with many of them. There is, of course, the name I am, Yahweh, or Jehovah. We don't exactly know how it was pronounced, where God told Moses at the burning bush that his name was Yahweh, I am that I am. And this, these names, they proclaim the character of God. So in God in Proclaiming his name is proclaiming by Yahweh that I am the ground of all being. I am existence itself. In Genesis 17, God says, I am El Shaddai, which can be translated God Almighty. In other words, God is saying in his character that I am all powerful, that I am able to do anything. There is nothing that can stand against me. Maybe you're familiar with the name in uh, Genesis 22, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, which means the Lord will provide, that the Lord has all of the resources that we need for uh, whatever challenges we face. But I want to talk about another name of the Lord today that probably not many of us are familiar with, and that is Jehovah Kana. This comes from Exodus 34, where God proclaims this name of himself when he is with Moses on the mountains, on the mountain, excuse me. And it comes from Exodus 34, 14, where God says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Jehovah Kana means the Lord is jealous. It's an interesting name that God gives of himself, that he is jealous. When we think about jealousy, we normally think of it as a negative emotion, right? Uh, A boyfriend who says to his girlfriend, you can't talk to any other guy, uh, uh, this kind of uh, paranoid uh, type of thinking. But jealousy in the right sense, in the good sense, is a very powerful and good thing. It can be translated as zeal or passion, ardor, possessiveness, in the good sense of the word. When God says that he is jealous, he is speaking about his character, how God feels and thinks and provides for those who are his. 
See, in this section here in Exodus 34, when God says, my name is jealous. Remember that he has brought out a people from slavery and he has said, I am your God and you are my people. And I will watch over you, but you shall not have any other gods before you. You shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I am your God. The way God felt about the Israelites is the way that he feels for us. That he is jealous for us. That he will have us only for himself. And when we turn to other gods... It arouses the jealousy in God's heart, for he has made us and redeemed us for himself alone. And so what Paul is challenging us in the scripture to do is to examine our hearts. Am I provoking the Lord to jealousy? Meaning, is my heart truly his, or am I giving it to other so-called gods? And if my heart truly is his, does my life reflect that? Or do my actions tell a different story? The point of my sermon is simply this. That Jesus' love for us is a jealous love. And he died for us that we would belong to him alone. So let us be faithful in devotion to the one who is devoted to us. Well, how do we do that? We're going to do that through three ways. Number one, we have to first recognize that we are married to Christ. That we are in a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, we need to examine our flirting. Are we flirting with the things and idols of the world? Finally, number three, we need to cut off any illicit affairs. So let's start looking at these things. Number one, we must first recognize that we are married to Christ. Paul begins by saying, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You need to understand the culture of Corinth. We've been talking about it. It's a culture of gods. There's a temple on every corner. It's a melting pot of religious affiliations, religious pluralism. This was the mindset of the Greeks and then the Romans, that there was safety in numbers. In other words, rather than trying to cut off all gods, rather let people worship their particular God. Everybody worships, uh, can worship their God, and we would worship their gods, and they would worship our gods. And then everything would get covered, if you will. And so there was an expectation that you would worship our gods, and we would worship your gods. And this was built into the system. The trade guilds, the government, the neighbors, everybody had a God, and you were expected to pay homage to them, just like you were expected to pay homage, they were expected to pay homage to your God. Whether going over to someone's house for a meal, or the, uh, or the guild, the meeting of your particular business group, or a community or civic function, worship was built into it. And Paul is saying in this verse that you cannot live like everyone else. Rather, you must flee from idolatry. You were meant to worship only one God. And the Corinthians are saying, well, why, Paul? I mean, this is the culture that they grew up in, this pluralistic religious culture. It's just the way it's done. 
So Paul is going to explain why you have to do this. He says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And the way that he explains it is by looking at this very issue, this food that's being sacrificed in feasts and comparing it to communion. See, Paul appeals to the Lord's Supper to make the point that sacrificial meals to idols are similar but opposite realities. In verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When he's speaking of the cup of blessing, he's talking about the cup in communion, right? And I'll be holding it up uh, very, very soon. The cup of blessing is the same one that Jesus held up at the end of the meal and said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the new covenant. We know that in the feast, uh, in the Passover feast, this cup that Jesus held was called the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption. It is a reminder of God, how he brought the Israelites out. And Jesus was using that cup to illustrate that it's through my blood, through my sacrifice on the cross, I will bring you out of sin and the dominion of death. And Paul is saying when you drink that, you're participating in what Christ has done. This word participating is the same word uh, we're familiar with, koinonia, fellowship or sharing with one another. To participate, to drink from the cup, is to unite ourselves to what Christ has done and to Christ himself. Remember Jesus in John 6, when he said to the people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. In other words, without me acknowledging who I am and what I've done and embracing that, we cannot have fellowship with one another. And so communion is a sacrament, a sign and a seal of this covenant of grace. If you will, it's a picture of the deeper reality of the grace that has been given us in Jesus Christ through his blood and body. He has redeemed us. He has paid the price for us. And it, by uh, participating in the communion table, just even thinking about, think about it, that we will, in a little bit, we will eat from the table. We will eat it. It will become part of us. Thus the name communion. Communion is being joined to someone. And in fact, this cup of blessing, it also, I'm sure that some in the congregation would think about this. There's a cup of blessing. If you ever go to a Jewish wedding, even today, there is a cup of blessing in a wedding. And this cup of blessing is denoting this new relationship that has happened, this new union. In Revelation 19, 9, the angel says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. To be saved is to be wed to Christ, to be joined to Christ. So that's what Paul is saying. This cup of blessing that we bless, that you participate in on Sunday, this bread that you eat, it's a sharing and a union with Christ himself. 
You know, the church back then, if you were go to go to a church service in Corinth, it would look something like this, that the preaching of the word would be available and open to anyone in the city of Corinth to come and to hear the word. But when it came time for communion, they would actually, uh, it would only be Christians that would allow. So, the, so, and people would know this. So at the time, then people who were not Christians, members of the church would leave and they would have communion. And this was a, a private time, a private uh, meal, if you will. And because it was private, and it was referred to like things like a love feast, um, the, uh, the people who weren't, uh, you know, didn't come to church, they, they actually wondered, is there some sort of orgy or something going on here? Because of the way you're describing this communion and eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus Christ, they, they were accused of cannibalism. That's the kind of intimacy that this table is. And, and we, we don't, uh, if you're not a Christian, we don't ask people to leave and to have communion. But I do ask people, if you're not a Christian, to not partake of the table. Why? Because the table, the gifts of God, are for the people of God. Because there is one bread, Paul goes on in verse 17, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. See, this, this uh, participating in the communion table not only unites us to Christ individually, but it also unites us to one another as Christ's body. That's what the church is called, right? Christ's body, and Christ dwells in us corporately. That we are the people of God. And God has made us to be a kingdom of priests to God. So that's what God is, that's what Paul is saying here. That when you're coming to the communion table, don't you recognize what you're saying and who you are and that you're joined to Jesus Christ? You must recognize that you're married to Christ and to Christ alone. And as such, you cannot go out and do what you're doing here with anybody else. I remember when I asked uh, Lee Ellen to marry me um, 29 plus years ago, and it was a big decision, right? It was a forever decision. Because for the rest of my life, I was going to be joined to this person. I was going to wake up every morning, and there, right next to me, was going to be her. And in order to be married to her, I needed to, A, make an unconditional commitment to her, right? In sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow. But I not only had to unconditionally commit myself to her, I needed to unconditionally forsake all others. As the vow says, in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, being faithful to her as long as you both shall live. In other words, in order to be united to her, I had to forsake all others, that no one else could occupy that special place in my life. That only she could have that place, that I was saying that I would be faithful to her physically emotionally, relationally. And I symbolize that with a ring, 
right? The ring is the sign of the covenant or the sacrament, a picture of the deeper reality. And the ring, which is on my finger and on her finger, is so that when I look at it, I would know and everyone else would know that I am joined to someone else. And so she said yes and took my name and we became one physically, spiritually, financially. All that was mine became hers and all that was hers became mine. Best decision that I ever made. See, Paul is reminding us that's what you signed up for when you gave your life to Christ. And that is what you affirm every week when you come to church. The communion table tells you and tells everyone else that I belong to Christ and he to me. Christ has purchased us with his blood and we have joined ourselves to him by faith. And so we must recognize the depth of our communion, our, com- our commitment to him and him to us. And so I ask you, does he occupy the only place in your heart? Or perhaps my devotion to him has grown soft. He doesn't care that much for me, and frankly, I don't really care that much for him. You need to understand, when Christ married himself to us, he really meant it. That he is jealous for our devotion and affection. That he has given us a new name, and his love for us is a jealous love. He died for us so that we would belong to him and to him alone. So recognize that we are married to Christ, and there cannot be a space for any other. This leads me to my second point. Then we must examine our flirting. It's very interesting if you look at verse 14, 10, 14, where it says, flee from idolatry. We've actually heard this uh, admonition to flee uh, earlier in Corinthians, in chapter 6, except it says uh, to flee from sexual immorality. See, there's parallels between chapter 10 and chapter 6. If you remember chapter 6, he's speaking about uh, our, our sexuality, right? And he's saying things like, your bodies are members of Christ. You cannot become one, therefore, you cannot take your body and unite it with a prostitute. Notice in the same way, He's saying that the Lord's Supper represents that we are one body with Christ. So he's painting a picture of this type of unique uh, uh, relationship between one and another. And he likens it to marriage. When you look at uh, Israel, whenever Israel would fall away, when they would go and worship other gods, the prophets accused Israel of adultery. That's how God saw it in his mind. Notice in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? The Greek actually says, consider Israel according to the flesh. 
He's speaking about Israel in the desert. When Israel strayed from the Lord, when they worshipped other gods. Remember when they told Aaron to go ahead and create this, this golden calf and an altar that we might worship it. And it says they sat down to eat and drink and play. They worshipped this God. They participated in the altar. They desired fellowship and union with that God. In fact, God was so angry in Exodus 32. He said, well, you want union with this God? He, he made the Israelites grind that uh, idol to powder and poured it in their water and made them drink it. So they would recognize, here's what you're saying. You want to be united with this idol? See, eating any food that has been consecrated on an altar binds the diner to that altar and the idol represented on that altar. Now, Paul continues on in verse 19. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? See, that's what the Corinthians are saying. Look, everybody does this, okay? It's just part of our culture. Nobody really believes these things. Are you saying, Paul, that these idols are actually real? Paul is saying, no. Look at verse 20. He's saying there's a deeper reality that you need to understand. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. See, there's a deeper reality between these idols. You think these idols are fake, and they are, but that which is behind them is not. The spiritual world is binary. There's God, and there's the devil and his angels or his demons. And they aren't equal. This isn't the Eastern understanding, which is of the yin and the yang. God and the devil are not two sides, light and darkness. The devil is an angel, a created being, who rebelled against God, desiring to be worshipped instead of God receiving worship, and with his rebellious angels fought against God and was defeated in heaven. But this devil wants to be worshipped. He masquerades as an angel of light. See, all of these gods in Corinth, whether Apollo or Artemis, or Serapium, or all of them, when people were offering to the idol, that's just a smokescreen. See, Satan is getting people to worship him through deception. Because this is the way it works. If you do not worship God, you worship Satan. Because Satan is evil. Okay, it's one or the other. If you worship anything but God, you are worshiping Satan. And that's what Satan wants. He wants worship. And so what Paul is saying here is that when you are participating in these other idols, even though you don't even think about it, you are worshiping and acknowledging and having fellowship with demons. Wait a second, Paul, this this is casual. I don't really mean it. But it does matter. The spiritual reality is the true reality. 
Because what you're doing is you're saying to the world, I worship this God. On Tuesday, I go to this temple, I worship this God. On Wednesday, I go to this temple, I worship this God, and so on and so on. You're proclaiming to the world, I'm uniting myself and worshiping this God. And you cannot unite yourself to someone without having consequences. Whether it's a person, or Christ, or a demon. You know, there's no such thing as casual sex. Okay? When you unite yourself to someone, there are lasting consequences to it. Think about the communion table itself. When we unite ourselves to Christ, we don't even fully understand what happens in the communion table. But we do know this. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's going to talk about this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's challenging the Corinthians who are coming to the communion table and not, uh, not taking sin and the lordship of Christ and their devotion to him seriously. And notice what happens. Verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What? Coming to the communion table, you're saying that actually some people are sick and have died because they have not taken the communion table, been serious about the communion? That's exactly what he's saying. There are consequences to uniting yourself to someone. And when you unite yourself to an idol, to a demon through that idol that seeks to destroy us, there are consequences. There's no such thing as casual worship. And in the end, one will always win out over the other. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Well, why not? Well, because your heart will ultimately be drawn toward one, toward what you worship. That's what happened with the Israelites, right? Remember, they started engaging in sexual relations with the Moabite women who said, come worship our gods. And it said that they were drawn to the gods of Moab. They yoked themselves to the ball of Peor. The Lord is also not okay with it. He's a jealous God. It hurts his heart when we treat our devotion to him so casually. And there are consequences in that relationship. Imagine this. Imagine that I'm married and I uh, take my wife and we go out to dinner. Isn't that interesting, by the way, how relationships start? One, you know, usually the guy asks the gal, hey, do you want to have dinner with me? Eating together, sharing from the same table. But let's imagine that the next day after I've had uh, a beautiful dinner with my wife on Tuesday, the next day, if you were to go to that same restaurant, there I am having dinner with another woman. And the next day after that, my wife is driving by and lo and behold, there's my car and I'm having dinner with another woman. What would my wife think? What would the world think? Well, what about us? We read and we hear about the Corinthians, but there's, there's not a temple on, the, on every corner here. We're not 
being asked to offer sacrifices on altars. But we need to understand that even though there is not a temple, it does not mean that there's not an idol. We have to examine who are we going out to dinner with. Here's the definition of an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And idols control us since we feel like we must have them or life is meaningless. And an idol is what you love, what you trust and obey. So the question we have to examine is what are our idols? Do we have any? I'm going to give you a couple. The first is the idol of success. Achievement is the alcohol of our time. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. The idol of success is something like this. I have to have this position. Get into this college. Make this salary. Belong to this country club. Live in this neighborhood. And everyone has a God, and every God has a price. And in order to have that, if this God is an idol uh, to you, that everything must take a backseat to it. Your family, your health, your ethics, your faith. It wants to be your God. One sign that you've made success an idol is the false sense of security that it brings you. The poor and the marginalized expect suffering. They know that life on this earth is nasty and short and brutish. But successful people are much more shocked and overwhelmed by troubles. Is my mindset, I love Jesus, but I really love my status and my position. And when push comes to chove, I'm going to take that. My friends, that is going to the table with demons. The idol of success. Is success a bad thing? No. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a very bad thing. Here's another idol in our culture, the idol of acceptance. The idol that I must be liked and well thought of or else. You know it. If you're in middle school or high school, I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. If you're an adult and you're in society and work, you know, I want my colleagues to like me. I want them to think well of me. But there's a cost to acceptance sometimes in this world. In high school, if you want to be popular, you need to listen to the music that we listen to. Even if it blatantly dishonors God and dishonors the things that God cares about. Yeah, if you want to be popular in your school, well, you need to be permissive with your body because that's just the way it is, right? So do I or do I not? 
How about as an adult? If you want to be accepted in this world, in this community, there's certain unpopular subjects you cannot speak about. And you cannot bring your faith in the public square. And don't you dare call anything wrong or right. It's tolerance at all costs. And I want to fit in. I want to be thinking, thought of as a nice, good person. Even if it means forsaking the things that I care about. God is very clear. Jesus says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world more than God, the love of the Father is not in him. How do you identify what are the idols that you are flirting with? I'll give you four thoughts on that. Number one, what do you characteristically daydream about? What do you daydream about? Number two, what do you most fear? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? Number three, what fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? And finally, number four, what do you effortlessly spend too much money on? Jesus is saying to us, stop flirting. For my love for you is a jealous love. I died for you that you would belong to me alone. So let us be faithful in devotion to the one who is devoted to us. My final point, number three, we need to cut ties, allegiances with these dalliances. How do we do that? I think the first thing is we recognize the beauty of the jealousy of God. You know, there's a difference between God's jealousy. Another word for jealousy is zealousness between God's zeal and human zeal. God's zeal has a future and a hope. But the driving force of human zeal is only about one's life, interests, and earthly advantages. God is jealous for us because he wants for us to experience all the blessings that he has for us, the love that he has for us, the goodness that he has for us. It's on the cross that I see that there's no one who will ever love me with this kind of unconditional love. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I must run back to Christ. I must sit at his feet and hear directly from him the gracious words that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I must seek my fullness in Christ alone. You know, the altar is where you sacrifice things. You can sacrifice idols on the altar. Christ is saying, bring to me these idols, and I will burn them. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Very soon we will be coming to the communion table, to the altar, if you will. Maybe it's time for us to sacrifice the idols that we've been flirting with. But here's what you must do to sacrifice them. Number one, you must acknowledge your sin. 
Just acknowledge the reality that I am, I am dating and flirting these thing, with these things that are killing me. And number two, I must repent. Imagine if you had an affair at work with someone, a man who had an affair at work. Can I continue to work there? No. Right? I need to cut ties. I need to move on. I need to flee from idolatry. I need to take steps in my life. See, I cannot recklessly walk into a trap and then expect God's deliverance. Rather, I must avoid it completely. God calls for no compromise. The way we love God is shown in obedience. Maybe you need a partner, someone to come alongside you, to help you, to encourage you, to hold you accountable, that your heart would be Christ's and Christ's alone. I've run out of time, so I just want to close by saying that Jesus' love for us is a jealous love. He died for us so that we would belong to him alone. So let us be faithful in devotion to the one who is devoted to us. Let's pray. God, thank you that your love for us is jealous. And Jesus, we see the passion that you have for us, the lengths that you would go to, to ransom us to yourself. Lord, let that speak deeply into our hearts. Lord, expose the deals that we have made, the dalliances that we have with the gods of this world. And give us courage to step away from that which is killing us, that we may wholeheartedly belong to you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.